Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Wherever you are, this is the Interpreter's Workshop Podcast. I'm Tim Curry, your host. Here we talk everything sign language interpreting. The ins, the outs, the ups, the downs, the sideways of interpreting. If you're a student, a new interpreter, experienced interpreter, this is the place for you. If you want to know more, go to interpretersworkshop.com. Let's start talking interpreting. And now, the quote of the day, or rather, the phrase of the day. Un, c'est bien. Deux, c'est mieux. Trois, c'est role space. No, that was not me. I'm rather good at voices, voiceover, but I'm not that good. That French phrase I would translate as one is good, two is better, three is role space. And my interpretation would be one dimension is good, two dimensions are better, three dimensions are role space. Ever since there have been interpreters, we have been discussing, debating, sarcastically arguing what is the role of interpreter. We have been stepping in and out of this role for decades. Hmm. But now let's get a new perspective. Last week we talked about the origin of the interpreter Robert G. Lee. This week we learned the origin of the concept of role space. Robert G. Lee and Peter Llewellyn Jones studied and researched and came up with this concept. But wait, why was the phrase in French? Hmm. Let's hear it from Robert. Let's get started. One thing that was exciting in your time in the UK was working with Peter Llewellyn Jones. I believe you did research with him. And mm -hmm. it was the topic of finding out what our role is as an interpreter and how to look at it mm -hmm. in a new way. So mm -hmm. if you could expand on that, tell us how you came about doing this, why you did it, mm -hmm. um, and how it grew into what it is today. Okay, sure. Um, I love talking about this stuff. <laughs> um, so rein me in if you need to. <laughs> no, that's good. Go. Uh, when I started working um, at the University of Central Lancashire, as I said, I had we had a two-year part um, part-time postgraduate program in interpreting, mm -hmm. um, one weekend a month, every other month over two years. That was for people who didn't yet have that level six language qualification, so it included level six BSL plus the interpreting mm -hmm. portion. There were some people who had gotten a level six qualification in BSL, British Sign Language. Um, but only needed the interpreting course. So there was an alternative version of the course that was run by Peter and his company, Sign Languages International. And instead oh. of being over two years, it was one year. It was one weekend a month for 10 months. Okay. Um, so it's people who already had the language qualification just need the interpreting qualification. Gotcha. So when I was hired, I was told, oh, there's this other program. And I was like, oh, okay. And I had met Peter at a conference years before, very quickly, didn't know each other very well. Mm -hmm. um, and so... We got together. I, he was interviewing for, because um, the course I did started in January, his started in September. So when I first started working, I said, oh, do you want me to help with the interviews? He's like, oh, okay, that'd be great. <laughs> so we started kind of doing that. Mm -hmm. And then I said, do you want me to come and do any teaching? And he was like, yes, that would be great. <laughs> um, and so uh, we started working together, you know, very closely and became uh, very good friends. 
And one of the things we realized fairly quickly in both kind of preparing to teach, but also kind of debriefing at the pub <laughs> afterward is, um, I mean, Peter is kind of the grandfather of interpreting sign language interpreting in the UK. He founded the register of interpreters. Uh, he founded the professional association. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so he's about, he's, you know, a decade and a half, I think older than I am. Um, but even though we had different kind of backgrounds, you know, different countries obviously mm -hmm. got into interpreting in different ways. We both had very similar ideas about what we thought successful interpreting was mm -hmm. and what it wasn't. Right. <laughs> and um, I still, to this day, there's no one good book about interpreting. I think there's no one single right. text. Um, he had been trying to write a book for a while. I've been trying to write something for a while. Um, finally, his his wife, who's smarter than all of us put together, <laughs> said, okay, you two just need to do something. Okay, we'll do something. So we started to kind of you know, try weekends here and there and uh, doing things, but you know, life gets in the way and shiny objects distract you. Mm -hmm. And again, his wife is smarter than all of us put together. She said, she called me up. This was like in June of, I want to say 2010 ish, something around there. Um, she said, you have some time off in the summer. And I'm like, right. She goes, do you have the week, anything off in August? I said, Oh, I have a week off in the first week. She goes, don't do anything. I'm like, Why? She goes, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> And she came back to me. She goes, right, here's what I've done. Um, I've rented an apartment for you and Peter to go away for a week and write a book. I can't control you, but I told him he's not coming back in this house until after a week <laughs> you come back with something that looks like a skeleton of a book. Otherwise, no. Um, so we went to France, as you do. Um, yes, as you we do. We rented an apartment, and as you do, in Normandy, in Honfleur. Beautiful time of year to be there. Beautiful um, Marina City. We had a fifth floor walk-up um, apartment with no elevator, no lift. Mm. Um, and so we would basically could make one trip up and one trip down per day. <laughs> um, there was no Wi-Fi in the apartment. Um, so, yeah, this was all very carefully <laughs> crafted. Wow. Um, so we got there on a Saturday. We brought our computers. We brought a bunch of books that we thought would be relevant. Mm -hmm. There was Wi-Fi available kind of on the ground floor. Um, mm. The first day, we just kind of, we had um, voice recorders. We had Post-it notes. We had paper and pencil everywhere. Uh -huh. um, what we had been struggling with, or we thought the field had been struggling with, is this concept of role. Yeah. That, you know, role is a four-letter word. It's problematic. Mm -hmm. It's used inappropriately or oh, i mean cynthia roy wrote back in the 90s about the problems of metaphors oh we're just like telephones we're not like telephone oh we're like televisions all that kind of stuff yes but we we said well forget about interpreting <laughs> what do we do when we're communicating so we went back to first principles and we said what do we know about how people communicate directly with each other in the same language when they're trying to even, even antagonistically, if we're in a fight, we still follow rules, you know, what do we know about that? Mm -hmm. Let's get a handle on that. And then what happens when you add an interpreter, how do things change or, or don't they change? So that's where we started. And literally the, we had this, it, it was an embarrassingly large place. It was like five or six bedrooms for both <laughs> of us. Cause it was, it was the attic of this, uh -huh. this on right. Looking over the Marina. Um, so um, I love to cook. So I was more than happy to kind of be the, the cook for the week. And um, we were doing dishes and we had these two 
dinner plates and we kind of overlapped them. We said, oh yeah, you know, if they're overlapping, that's when people kind of share a language or share things. And, and if you take them away and there's only a little bit of overlap, that's what happens when we don't share a language. And mm-hmm. we, we spent a lot of time going to this little shop across the way that had really fabulous cheese and wine. Um, <laughs> my French is pretty limited. It, it's limited to food. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter admittedly doesn't speak anything. So he'll <laughs> accidentally speak Spanish because he thinks he speaks French. But we managed to have this relationship with this sh- um, shop owner, uh-huh. even though we didn't share a language. We're like, oh, we actually can do stuff with language, even if we're not sharing it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so during the week, we just kind of kept talking. Again, we had notes everywhere. We had voice memos. We said, yeah, there's and and one of the early things that we we found if we looked at you know sociology in the early 20th century not talking about interpreting but the 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 concept of role exists in general mm-hmm. and, and the way sociologists talk about role is role is when you're enacting a status mm-hmm. so we all have statuses and we have some statuses um we have what are called ascribed statuses so you're born that way so like you know you know if you're born the first son of a monarch <laughs> You know, you will probably be monarch next, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and then we have achieved statuses like qualifications, education, et cetera. And the way sociologists talk about role was when you're enacting your statuses, you know, the various statuses that you have, then you're enacting a role. So we have the role of parent. We have the role of sibling. We have the role of coworker, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and the crucial thing, which got us away from, I think, our problem in in how we characterized role in interpreting was roles are not what we have, they're what we do. And a lot of the discourse around role with interpreters was talking as if roles are things we have. So we talk about these metaphors of, oh, it's like putting on different hats or it's wearing different coats or taking off your coat of, or you're stepping in and out of it. No, roles are not entities. Roles are what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things Peter and I kind of bonded on when we first started working together was, we both believed saying I'm stepping out of role is meaningless. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do things that are illegal, unethical, and inappropriate, but you are still enacting the role of interpreter. Right. You're going to say, oh, I've stepped out of role to give my opinion. No, you were giving your opinion as the interpreter, which is probably inappropriate, mm-hmm. but you don't get to step out of role. It's not like playing the game of tag, where if you touch base, that you're safe. Right. And part of what we think, and I think I was guilty of this early in my career, is I use that phrase to explain behaviors which felt intrinsically okay, but might have been against a code that was, wasn't really written very well, mm-hmm. code of ethics or a code of practice. Yes. So you can't step out of role. You can be inappropriate. You can do stuff that's illegal, but you're still the interpreter, which is why if you do things that are against the code, we can then bring you up on charges. Mm-hmm. If you could really step out of role, then we couldn't do that. And I use the example of a doctor. If a doctor steps out of role, quote unquote, and writes prescriptions for friends and family, which is illegal, mm-hmm. you can actually have that doctor stricken from the register because they're enacting the role of doctor inappropriately. They're not stepping out of role to do that. Right. Okay. Um, so that was the core idea of role space is that roles are what we do, not what we have. And literally, it was the last night <laughs> of our Hunt Floor experience. At about two in the morning when we were packing up and getting ready to leave really early, where I forget how it came about, but we had all these notes. And I and I was like, when we talked about, for example, alignment is one of the things. We talk about how we align with the participants. Mm-hmm. Not that we like them, 
better, but how do we show that we're trustworthy, that we're acting with integrity so they can trust us with their, with their messages. Mm -hmm. And we had these plates, as I mentioned, kind of overlapping. And I also realized, oh, when I'm moving between like the deaf person on my right side and the hearing person on my left, oh yeah, I'm aligning differently. Right. So that's sort of horizontal. Mm -hmm. We manage the interaction. We sometimes ask people to stop or clarify or repeat um, or just hold on so we can finish. That feels kind of vertically, I'm managing things, or if I'm very low down, I'm not managing things. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes it's me, Robert, not the interpreter, but me speaking. And sometimes it's my, I'm presenting myself. So there's more of me there. Other times there's not. And so that's sort of how we came up with the kind of three dimensional things. And what we came up with that literally the last night was, oh, we take up space. We take up both literal and metaphoric space and interactions. Yeah. You know, many times we we go into situations that don't aren't expecting an extra body or two. Mm -hmm. And oh, we need to get a chair for the. We take up space, even on Zoom. <laughs> we take up an extra box. Yes, right. Yes. And so that's we went. Well, either we get rid of the concept of role, but I don't think that's very helpful, or we add space onto it and say what interpreters do is they enact. Uh, a variety because of the decisions they make along these three axes, they create a space. Um, sometimes that space is, is, is very constrained and limited mm -hmm. because of the situation, whether it's a legal situation, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's much broader where it's, you're interpreting with children, but all of it is based on the fact of, of interpreters pr providing um, and enacting the optimal space to allow the participants to have a successful interaction. And I enjoy every interaction with you. Go to the show notes, click on the links. Let's interact, share a coffee or two, and share the passion. Thank you. Let's go back. So let me step out on a limb here. <laughs> the way you've described it, roles are statuses that we enact. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, we get yeah as roles in general. In, in general, when when we're enacting a role, we're enacting some status that we have. Mm -hmm. And that status could be something like customer. Right. So how I, you know, if I go into my local pharmacy, I don't act like the pharmacist. <laughs> I act like the person who's seeking medication. Right. Um, so it doesn't, all those things we do in real life. Interpreters, our role is we're the multilingual, multicultural, familiar people who are there to enable these people to have a conversation they might not be able to have. So we have our role space and each of the participants have their own role spaces as well. You could argue that. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, we're focused on what interpreters are doing, but yeah. And the participants themselves are going to manage their interaction in a certain way. Mm -hmm. They're going to present themselves in a certain way. They're going to align or not mm -hmm. in a certain way. Yeah. yeah. Um, but our job um, is to make sure that what we're, the, the role space that we're enacting or we're creating allows them to communicate with each other successfully. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we don't get in the way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so sometimes we just need to get the hell out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> what is the next step then? If we have this idea of role space, this is how we behave, how we act in that moment, in that situation. Should we now go to the next step of creating a, a code of space? My feeling is that this is a description of how people... Um, make interpreters can make decisions or the types of decisions they can make mm -hmm. that can either hinder or, or help sure. people have interactions. What we need to do is talk about 
what are the limits of that? Because one of the things that, you know, th this is not a free for all. You don't get to, you know, present yourself as much or align your, with everybody in the, in the room mm -hmm. or manage the interaction, you know, at your heart's content. Um, what are you doing that's appropriate for this given situation or that's negotiated? Mm -hmm. um, because one of the other things is that, you know, older models of interpreting, more machine mechanistic conduit models of interpreting where you do X or you don't do X. Like there was mm -hmm. this very binary. Yeah. This is, okay, well, what are the things, I mean, I've worked with, you know, deaf participants where I was the only interpreter. It was one of those situations where one interpreter wasn't enough, but two was too many. Mm -hmm. And I worked with somebody doing a lot of academic work at conferences, and they'd often say, look, I can read the PowerPoint. <laughs> um, <laughs> don't not interpret, but save your energy for the questions and answers, because I think that's more important. So we negotiated that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I was going to, if I didn't understand something, I wasn't going to interrupt. Uh, so I managed the interaction a lot less than I would have in other situations right. because we negotiated that. Yeah. And it's providing that type of negotiation and that space for that mm -hmm. is, I think, what allows us to be successful. So this concept of role space helps us just see better of what we are doing in a situation. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we can assess or evaluate our behaviors Mm -hmm. uh, and see whether or not it was appropriate, inappropriate, how we can change it, that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Whether it was effective or not, you know, um, am I, am I over aligning? Am I only aligning with one side of the equation? Yeah. You know, am I, am I aligning a lot with the deaf person, but ignoring the hearing person? Mm -hmm. Okay. Is that helpful? Is that, is that facilitative? Um, if it's, I know the hearing person really well because I'm a staff interpreter in this agency, the deaf person is new. Yeah. I might align a lot more with them because I have to, you know, mm -hmm instill some trust and, and, you know, prove that I'm, I'm acting with integrity. Right. So yeah, it's all about figuring out what are those decisions and, and the idea that the role space changes during the interaction, not just from interaction to interaction, right. you know, so hopefully how I'm behaving in the beginning of an interaction is going to be different than four hours later. Right. It can also show us if something did go wrong in that moment, we can look back on it and say, oh, I was doing this, this, and this that may have caused this to happen or exactly okay. exactly yeah. that makes yeah. sense and one of the things I've, I've done a bunch of trainings with lots of interpreters both spoken and signed around this and one of the things i i find really fascinating it gets back to uh i mean we have these you know the interaction management and participant alignment and presentation of self as kind of terminology mm -hmm. um but it's more about what are you trying to achieve well mm -hmm. i get the sense that um, the hearing person doesn't, because they've never worked with an interpreter before, they've never met a deaf person before, they don't trust me, because they don't, th this is magic that I'm doing. Yes. So I need to do some work mm -hmm. to align with them so that they go, oh, this person knows what they're doing, and I can trust them with my, even though they wouldn't articulate it that way. Right. I can trust them with my message, and I, and whatever comes back, I can trust as well. Mm -hmm. So I have to do some work around that. Right. Um, and it's just to give us a set. And, and once I do that, I can get the heck out of the way mm -hmm. <laughs> and let these two people have their interaction Yeah. while, while I'm interpreting, obviously not just leave. <laughs> right. So those kind of those soft skills. Yeah. And again, I, I, unfortunately this, they are called soft skills mostly because they came from the tech world yes, because yes. there's the hard stuff, <laughs> you know, but for us, they're not soft, especially if, if you're not interpreting in, if you're interpreting in a booth, it's very different. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and you're not interacting but if you're interpreting in the community or you're interpreting where you're actually involved with the people, mm -hmm. those are core skills. They're not, they're not ancillary. Um, yeah. And, and 
not, and I'm never going to say that language isn't important. Language skills are very important. Sure. But equally important is our ability to navigate situations in ways that, again, one of the core principles that, that Peter and I have talked about is, what would I do if this was a monolingual situation? What do people expect? Yeah. Start with that. Start with the kind of expected, quote unquote, normal type of situations before we do weird interpreter stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, so in with very few exceptions, maybe in court or in, you know, royal or in, you know, diplomatic protocol, people don't refer to themselves in the third person or by their own name. Yes. They use I or me, mm-hmm. you know, but, but us saying the interpreter would like a break yes. or the interpreter... <laughs> That's just weird. <laughs> you know, it's just, and people go, who's the interpreter? <laughs> oh, that's the guy that's talking. Why are you? Yeah. Only like royalty get to say that. You know? Yes. Um, or if you're having a, you know, a, a fugue state where you're kind of disassociating from yourself. Um, why do weird interpreting stuff? Mm-hmm. Because if we do that, people go, well, I don't want to draw attention to the interpretation. Well, you've just done it yeah. more so than if you had just said, excuse me, can you repeat that for me? Yeah. That's expected. That's how we ask for clarification and repetition in a, a regular conversation. Yeah. Start with the regular stuff. If that doesn't work, then you can do some special interpreter stuff, which and and you can feel really important. Yes. Um, <laughs> but just start with the expected normal stuff. Because if we do that, if we behave as expected, we're not going to ever be invisible, because I hate that as a metaphor, because it makes no sense. But we can be transparent. So people can... The interpretation can come through us and people can actually connect with the other person as if we weren't there. It's never perfect. But the more we do things that are in expected in the expected set on both sides of the equation, depending on the languages and cultures we're working with, the more people are going to not forget that we're there, but just it's just going to it's going to be easier for everybody, including the interpreter. Yes. Well said. I would have loved to have been in that French apartment with you guys. That would it was that, fun. that sounds a, like a blast. That uh, yeah. The worst part was carrying all the wine bottles down at the end of it. <laughs> the worst part was carrying. The- That's the worst part of roast. <laughs> what a wonderful window into the beginnings of a concept for the interpreting profession. For me, I envisioned this wide open attic apartment with the two of them roaming around inside, trying to come up with role space while they were inside this huge space themselves, focusing on the job they had to do. Robert had a wonderful companion to work with, as he called him the grandfather of interpreting in the UK, Peter Llewellyn Jones. The two of them took the time to work out what we have all been struggling with, the concept of the role of interpreter. The core idea is that role is not something that we have. It's not an entity that we step into and step out of or that we put on and we can take off, but it's rather what we do. It is our status. In this situation, the participants have their role, who they are, and we have our role, which is interpreter. We cannot take off the label interpreter while we are there. Robert made me rethink my idea of soft skills. Soft skills have always been very important for interpreters. I never realized that me calling it soft skills makes it sound as though it's less important than other skills. 
interacting and behaving in a way that is normal for the situation and normal for these cultures and languages. That's an important core element of our skills as an interpreter, especially as sign language interpreters. They are not extra skills that help us once in a while, but rather they are in the middle of it. They are right there all the time. So let's start there. As Robert said, start with the expected. When you're in a conversation with these people in this situation, at this time, what is expected of us? How do they interact? How do they interrupt each other? How do they know where to sit? How to address others? How to ask a question? All of that should be expected norms. And we should do the same normal things. Rather than using some terminology that we have adopted as the interpreter words to use, which can be confusing to them, it may be confusing to us because it makes it feel unnatural and interruption. So let's start with the expected before we give anything unexpected. For me, it helps us get rid of the metaphors of role and think about the real behavior. So stay calm, keep on interpreting. I'll see you next week. Take care now.